Bitcoin is underappreciated even to this day. The public focus is usually on the speculative value. What's the price of Bitcoin? But Bitcoin has functional value as a technology platform. If I want to make 100 transactions with my bank for a single cent, the bank won't allow it. Our current financial infrastructure is not set up for micropayments. Bitcoin is built with micropayments in mind. As Bitcoin works through its governance issues and its scalability problems, we will see gradual improvement in financial liquidity between people and machines. 21 is a company that has raised $120 million to make Bitcoin useful to developers. This is a long-term project, and the first step of that project is to get Bitcoin in the hands of users. To fulfill that end, 21 is developing services that encourage people to make small digital transactions. The first service is the 21 messaging service, where users can pay to send messages to people who are unlikely to respond to an unsolicited email. For example, if I want to send an email to a venture capitalist pitching my company, I am more likely to get a response if I pay that venture capitalist $20 to read my message through 21, rather than if I send a cold email from my email address. Balaji Srinivasan is the CEO of 21, and he joins me for a conversation about the potential of Bitcoin and the objectives of the company that he is building. Software Engineering Daily is having our third meetup. Wednesday, May 3rd at Galvanize in San Francisco. And the theme of this meetup is fraud and risk in software. One of the guests is going to be the data science head of Coinbase. So if you're interested in Bitcoin, if you're listening to this episode because of that, then you might like that talk at the meetup. We're going to have great food. We're going to have engaging speakers. And as always, a friendly intellectual atmosphere. If you want to find out more, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash meetup. Now let's get on with this episode. Balaji Srinivasan is the CEO of 21. Balaji, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, Jeff. Uh, it's great to be here. Bitcoin is underappreciated even to this day. The public focus is usually the speculative value, and this is true even among software engineers. And... I know that 21 is working to make products that are usable by everyday people because you want to get Bitcoin in the hands of everyday people so it starts becoming a utility rather than just a unit of speculation. And the first product in that category is the Inbox product. Explain what the 21 Inbox product does. Absolutely, Jeff. So the uh, the concept behind the 21 Inbox product is that uh, you can now get paid to read email and complete messages uh, and tasks online. And the reason that's interesting is right now there have been two ways that people have uh, obtained digital currency. Uh, the first is mining it, um, and the second is buying it. And this is a third way to get it, which is earning it. And uh, the utility of getting Bitcoin by earning it by performing a micro task is that you don't need to put a piece of hardware there and uh, you don't need to whip out your credit card. Um, so you're neither spending your store weld nor you know electricity or what have you. Now, there are situations where you'll want to mine or buy digital currency, but this third complementary way is very interesting if we can scale it up. Um, and certainly people answer millions and millions and millions of emails uh, and messages per day. 
Um, so it's a way that we think uh, you can actually mainstream Bitcoin and get into the hands of lots of people pretty quickly if, if it works at scale. So if we envision a world where celebrities have used this on a regular basis, some regular people have used this on a regular basis, and you've got, say, 10,000 people who now have a little bit of Bitcoin on their digital wallet, what can you do in that world that you couldn't do before? Great question. So I think, you know, the world really changes once we start to get not 10,000 people with it, but on the order of a million to 10 million people. Because right now where Bitcoin is, it's sort of um, topped out in terms of growth. That is to say, there was an early group of, you know, let's say between 10 to 100,000 people that, you know, was the community from, say, 2009 to 2013. That's a very, very rough estimate. Um, maximum a million people, but that's probably on the high side. Then from 2013 to today, um, it's exploded. And, uh, but it's also sort of topped out. Basically, the community at large maybe is maximum 10 million people who hold digital currency based on summing up all the wallets and so on online. It's not, it's not 100 million. It's maybe 10 million. And most of those folks are sort of, you know, dilettantes. They've bought 50 bucks or 100 bucks worth of it. They're just kind of holding on to just checking it out. So we need something transformative to get to the next one or two orders of magnitude to get to 100 million and then a billion users. So uh, what changes once you have a million people who have earned Bitcoin by just, you know, replying to a message or filling out a survey? So the first thing is um, they have gotten Bitcoin en route to doing something else of utility. And that itself will increase the valuation of Bitcoin because uh, right now the valuation of Bitcoin and other digital currencies is primarily based on its speculation value and its store value value <laughs> uh, rather than its uh, use value. Um, and those are interrelated. Insofar as Bitcoin is digital gold, the only thing that you require of it is that you can purchase it, you can hold the private keys, and then later at some point in the future, you can exchange it for, you know, either fiat and then food or then, you know, food directly, right? And that's actually the application that's being, that's being used for in places like Venezuela where the currency is in crisis, right? Um, so the digital gold application is one. And then the second is speculation about, you know, in the future, digital currency will take over the world. It'll be used for all types of things. And, uh, you know, that's actually gotten the entire industry very far in the sense that if you sum up cryptocurrency market cap today, that's $20 billion. If you add Bitcoin and Ethereum and all the other guys together, $20 billion coming up from nothing in 2009. If you thought of that as a startup sector, that'd be one of the most successful startup sectors out there. Only like Uber or Airbnb are comparable in terms of their startup vintage years. It's bigger than, you know, maybe cloud storage. Dropbox is like 10 billion or thereabouts. Maybe you add in Google Drive, but it's comparable to cloud storage, which is massive, right? So where, where it is already is actually very, very impressive, but there's still probably two orders of magnitude left to go for this digital currency thing, maybe more, um, because the use cases still haven't come out there. Now, to return to your point, that's kind of setting the frame. Let's say you do have a million people and they have now um, obtained Bitcoin for answering a message. So a critical aspect of what we're doing is that it's not just useful to take the Bitcoin and go and sell it on an exchange and get dollars back. You can then reuse the Bitcoin within the system to go and buy somebody else's time. And that might seem like a small thing, but it's actually a big thing because... Uh, what that means is that 21 becomes a Bitcoin sink in the sense that folks put Bitcoin in the system and then they 
earn Bitcoin in the system and they keep the Bitcoin in the system rather than selling it for dollars. And what that does is it actually shifts the price of Bitcoin up because a Bitcoin sink means there's constant demand. Um, another way of thinking about this is if you take a small country like Estonia that had about 1.2 million people and uh, or has and Estonia up until about 2011 used its own currency called the Kroon and um, what that showed is that a small country of about one one million odd people could actually have its own currency uh, in which the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker all paid each other in Kroon. Okay. Um, and what's interesting about this is all these folks were geographically located in the same spot. Uh, they uh, have balances or had balances in Kroon of on the order of ten thousand dollars per person or more, because um, you know they had worked and had a stored balance. Uh, and uh, they had a diversified set of professions. You know, they were butchers and bakers and candlestick makers and, and what have you. Now, the Bitcoin community, even though it's about 5 to 10x larger, and more generally the digital currency community, even though it's about 5 to 10x larger, um, it has limitations that that Estonian community does not. Um, it is spread out worldwide rather than concentrated in one place. Uh, the balances that people have on hand are not $10,000 worth per person, but they're, you know, basically a few bucks, maybe 100 bucks. Uh, and the diversity of skills is not really there. You're talking mainly technology people, software engineers, you know, venture capitalists, folks like that. Uh, you don't have a lot of, you know, seamstresses or, you know, bakers or what have you in, in the mix, right? And so as such, to actually have a use case which knits this disparate community together, you need to start thinking about products that could be sent back and forth along the edges, which are uh, uniquely useful in the context of digital currency. And so I'd argue that's not going to be a cup of coffee because if you've got somebody in Japan and somebody in Brazil who are both Bitcoin holders, a cup of coffee is a physical good and it's hard to send between them. However, what both of these people have and often value is each other's time. If one is a software developer and one's a venture capitalist or, or one is uh, an engineer and the other's a recruiter and so on and so forth, the entire technology-based like information economy is really about the value of other people's time. And so now you can imagine a million person community, even if they're mostly technologists and, and engineers and so on, having many different reasons why they might want to buy somebody else's time. For example, you want to buy the time of a thousand Facebook users for beta testing your app, right? Or a thousand product hunt users for giving you an early review of the app before it, before it launches. Or you want to have, you know, a hundred VCs respond yes, no to, to your message as to whether or not you'd get funding. Or a thousand Stanford students and they say yes, no as to whether you get recruit, you could recruit them, right? And so these are things where you're buying people's time, but you're using digital currency to do it. You're buying a digital product, namely time with a digital currency. Um, but it's of significant value because human time has value. And yet it fits this entire model where you've got a pointillistic distributed community with small balances. Um, this is now a product that's actually intrinsic and, and inherent and native to that world. It makes sense to start with the type of communication, for example, a software engineer communicating to a VC, hey, I packed together this product, I want, uh, I want to pay you 30 or $20 so that I can communicate with you. But it's, of course, easy to move down market. You can imagine plenty of smaller payments being facilitated. And what I like about that is that it is descriptive. You can get to the, once you get to the lower end where it's like, okay, I have to pay a really popular florist 10 cents to get them to even look at my, uh, my proposition for my wedding. 
uh, because they're so popular. This gets us towards a public understanding of what a micropayment is. And that's so that to me is like the main burden of people understanding the value of Bitcoin because most people do look at it essentially as tulips. Uh, even software engineers and venture capitalists are like, yeah, I own a little bit of Bitcoin just because I want to understand the space a little bit. Like, okay, so what do you understand? Well, I understand it's going up and down in value. <laughs> but like, they don't get the micropayment thing. So explain what a micropayment is and why Bitcoin enables it from a fundamental technological perspective. Right. Okay, great question. So uh, so one thing is, I will say that folks who do, you know, when they talk about learning about the space, obviously, you know, they see it goes up and down. Um, before talking about micropayments, there is one other thing that they may may learn, which is actually very useful, which is that in Bitcoin, possession is 10 tenths of the law. Uh, okay. In the sense that if you have private keys, you hold the money uh, in a way that's extremely different from pretty much anything else we're used to. Because if you have a credit card, you don't really have the money. Um, because, uh, you know, your credit card can be stopped by the bank. It can be stopped by the credit card company. It can be stopped by many other kinds of parties, right? Um, by fraud protection lock when you're overseas. Um, Bitcoin is most similar to cash, but it's cash that no individual government can devalue, um, because it is this international entity, um, essentially because the blockchain is a ledger that's on all these different machines. And so that is something which I do think it's not. It's not dumb to say, you know, one is learning about the space by buying and holding a little bit of Bitcoin. If the only thing you learn is uh, one learns is about private keys, it's actually a useful and very non-obvious lesson, right? I would say. Okay. So then, uh, second thing. So let's talk about micropayments. What is a micropayment? Why? Why is? Why does Bitcoin make that uh, feasible? So, um, you know, there's different people who who have different thresholds for what micropayments are. And, um, you could, you could have it be as high as a dollar, but really people usually talk about it in the cents or even fractions of a cent. Um, what Bitcoin allows, uh, through technologies like payment channels and then something called the Lightning Network, which is almost like a, like a grid or a web of payment channels in a sense. Um, what Bitcoin allows is, uh, the ability to do micropayments by, um, one method is to put down a balance. Uh, like a deposit uh, with a you know an entity, and then you can transact back and forth and have like a small um, debit from that every time that you are you know purchasing something. And uh, a way that you can generalize that is if you put down a deposit of let's say you know ten dollars worth with a hub, um, then any other micropayment kit will know that connects to that hub. You can now actually have settlement you know back and forth with that, right? So. Um, Essentially, you know, what, what Bitcoin allows is for a certain class of applications, you can now have uh, a lower threshold for, you know, payments going out. Um, and in theory, that's going to be uh, very powerful because right now the advertising supported internet means that there's multiple intermediaries between, you know, the, you know, content producer and the customer. You have at a minimum, for example, an AdSense supported webpage as at least two other parties who are Google and the advertiser. Um, and one of the things that leads to is, you know, as, as people have seen with the recent YouTube foo and the recent AdSense foo is that, you know, content owners um, can have their revenue drop 20, 25% due to the bad actions of other content owners. It's not, uh, you know, simply a relationship between you and the person who's surfing your webpage. Um, it is something where you're vulnerable to all of these other parties within the network. The advertising, you know, support internet has, has a lot of issues where direct payment would, would be better. But um, I should say that while we can get micropayments to work in Bitcoin today, 
Um, it is uh, something which is like very much in the early stages, right? Um, it is going to be a while before uh, that, you know, really, really, you know, gets out there. And I don't think that the first application of micropayments and let's say small payments, not exactly micro, but small international payments, I don't think the first application will just be to go and rip and replace the ad support internet. Um, and the reason being because that is that works for all its faults. It works. It's at massive scale. There's large incumbents defending it, etc. Instead, what I think the application is going to be is to monetize a previously unmonetizable area. Um, That's to say to take a greenfield um, and uh, turn that into something which is is now generating and throwing off a lot of cash. And then later you can kind of go kitty corner and come back into the advertising support model, right? As as just sort of a historical analogy, Google did not start by going against Microsoft um, in its core businesses of Office and so on. Instead, Google went to search, which is totally different. Um, it built a massive multi-billion-dollar business, and then with the money from that, it funded Google Docs and Google Sheets and Google Slides and and so on, right? And Gmail, which are all attacks against Microsoft's core businesses. But it took a while, it took its sweet time in doing that and built up a strong business first before trying to attack the incumbent. In the same way, I think it's very interesting to think about businesses which are enabled by digital currency um, that are not... um, that are not as easy to do or not as lucrative in the in the previous model. When I make most of my purchases these days, I'm going through Visa or MasterCard or some other sort of intermediary, and they charge me a toll for using their services, or they charge the merchant a toll, which ends up charging me as well. And that is to provide a network of insurance that... Uh, and anti-fraud mechanisms um, that are attacks, but are in some sense attacks worth paying, because otherwise there'd be much more fraud. The world in which we have lightning networks and side chains probably is cheaper, because the uh, the trust and verification systems are more decentralized. They're more. Uh, granular and distributed as i understand i haven't looked into this space too much how different would payments look i do want to get into online advertising perhaps but just if we talk about just payments and we compare a world in which bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have achieved large penetration and large-scale adoption how much different is our everyday financial transactions relative to the current model of Apple and uh, Visa and MasterCard and the other monoliths? Well, okay, so here's, I think, one sort of good analogy or way that I think about it at least. You know, if you were growing up in the 80s or even the early 90s, um, there was a time in which you could enumerate all of the communications that you initiated in the course of a day, right? You could say, okay, I made this many phone calls. and, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, like basically reached out to this many people. Now, today, you cannot enumerate the number of electronic communications you make in a day. If you go and open, you know, Chrome Inspector, when you just go to TechCrunch.com, right, you're hitting 200 sites for all of these ad pixels and so on. There's so many HTTP requests that are being made on your behalf, right? 
and uh, every time that you hit enter when you chat with somebody in electronic communications being initiated, right? So on a daily basis, every IoT device you have, every fitness tracker, uh, every time that you you know use Google Maps and you send your GPS location and, and so on and so forth, you are initiating probably thousands, if not tens of thousands, of electronic communications per day. When you know 20 years ago, you could count them on one hand. Um, and sort of in the same way, I think we're going to see something similar with payments once micropayments comes about, right? Because currently, for the most part, you can count how many transactions you initiate on a daily basis. You can go to your bank account and you can see, uh, oh, you know, I use my credit card for this. I wired this person. It's a countable number, right? It's a useful thing for you to be able to go and log that, right? Um, once we have, uh, you know, true micropayments, uh, you are going to uh, find yourself giving a high-level instruction like, Oh, go and buy something, you know, to, to the computer. And then all of this auction behavior, all of this bidding logic and so on will happen under the hood in the same way that you give a high level instruction, fetch techcrunch.com, and then 200 page requests happen under the hood. And you'll probably put a cap or a limit saying, get this, but spend no more than five bucks and um, then come back to me with it, right? Uh, for example, here's a spreadsheet. Um, here's the names of a bunch of people. Please get me all their emails. Spend no more than five bucks, right? That's like a very simple data analytic thing where you're drawing on some distributed work, right? You're calling some distributed API effectively, and maybe your system goes and it talks to 20 machines and says, okay, what's the lowest price for this? Translate this from English into French, right? Um, you know, Photoshop this this image and, and make it redder or, or whatever, right? Any kind of machine instruction that you can give like this, um, your computer can now buy and maybe sell machine resources to other machines around the world. Uh, and I think that's what happens once payments become truly electronic. They become like communications. For people who are listening to this and they still don't understand the connection between the blockchain distributed ledger technology and how that enables smaller amounts of money to be transacted upon, how would you explain that? Uh, good question. I would say the fundamental thing about the blockchain is that it is a... Um, conceptual programmatic unification of many different kinds of payment methods. So uh, let me again explain by analogy with the internet, right? Prior to the internet, you had physical mail um, and you had television and uh, you had telephony, right? So you had the U.S. Postal Service physical mail and you had television, NBC, and you had telephony, which was AT&T. Um, and then after the internet, everything moved into packet-switched information. And with packet-switched information, you could have... Uh, Gmail, and you could have YouTube, and you could have Skype, um, or you could have something like Google Hangouts, which kind of combines all of them, right? You have an email, and then you can have a call and a video chat at the same time. And so these previously disparate communication methodologies through the mechanism of packet switching were just turned into really the same thing, right? I am sending this information to this other person, and I need no pre-authorization from anybody. Any computer can send and receive packets to any other computer, right? There's no license from AT&T required. Uh, there's nothing required other than an internet connection. Um, and that's basically what digital currency and the blockchain allow. Any single device that can connect to the internet can get a dial tone from the blockchain. You can download the blockchain if you have an internet connection. And you can write to the blockchain if you have a private key that has some Bitcoin or, or digital currency associated with it. That is completely different from how the typical banking system works. It is simply not the case that if you have a pulse, you have a bank account. Right, like most people in the world are, in fact, unbanked. In fact, most more people in the world today now have smartphones and bank accounts, which is actually not something most people know about. Um, 
So as such, in the same way that you had to do a deal before with AT&T in order to do communications-related transactions, uh, you still currently have to do a deal with a bank to do payment-related transactions. And that chokehold basically is what prevents many different kinds of transactions from happening because banks are no more built for that than AT&T's phone lines were built for many, many small packets being sent back and forth. You needed fiber optics. You needed other kinds of, of pipes, right? So as a rough analogy, like if you tried to send 10 million micropayments back and forth, the bank would ban you for fraud, um, and you wouldn't be able to do that. First you, first, you would not even be able to initiate that many payments. The bank would ban you for fraud. Um, second is uh, the fees associated with them would be too high since you're eventually going through the bank. Um, and so on and so forth, right? Now, the way that people can get around that to some extent is they virtualize it, right? So um, Google, for example, will record uh, every single page impression you've had. It's like a virtual currency. And then we'll pay out on a, you know, on a, uh, like a time average basis. So for example, after 10,000 page views, you get $3 or whatever it is, right? So it's like they're maintaining their own virtual currency within the Google ecosystem. Um, they're not trying to do a bank-to-bank -bank transaction and settlement every single time. Uh, and so they're building up a credit for you by writing to their database. That's a higher throughput thing than trying to actually do a settlement. Um, however, uh, the there's many issues with that. One of them is that when you do that, um, you promote centralization. Um, in the sense that Google can freeze your funds, a PayPal can seize your funds. Anytime you're doing things that are off-chain for a long period of time where you don't have custody of it, um, you you run the risk of them you know, saying, oh, you had 300,000 page views and you've got $400 in your account, but guess what? Google has frozen it and you can't cash it out. Right? And that happens to many, many people many times. Um, there's other issues as well, uh, but uh, you know, another one is that um, often payouts from Amazon Mechanical Turk or PayPal or Google only happen, let's say, every 30 days, right? And so you can't just get the money right away. Um, and so what that means is that if you've got a business that's based on the velocity of money, for example, you need to collect all the money uh, here before you can go and buy some you know, goods there to then start the next step in your supply chain. If the settlement has to be fast, um, then you you can't execute the next step. So you're looking puzzled. Let me try and give a concrete example. No, no, I'm not puzzled. Because you, okay, so what you described with, you basically described TransferWise, right? Like TransferWise in terms of the thing where they set up, okay, you've got, we're, we're holding Jeff's money in a TransferWise account in Australia. And so that if you, Jeff, if you need to make 15 microtransactions to Australia, we will make it seamless for you to make all 15 of those and we will bundle those into one so that it doesn't get rejected. Yeah. So 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 TransferWise is an awesome company. We're investors in TransferWise. Tavit's a great guy. Um, you know, my my friend and colleague Ben is on the board, so I have nothing bad to say yeah. about TransferWise. Well, you great didn't company. say it wouldn't work. Yeah. You just said it was centralizing. Well, what do I think about TransferWise? So basically, companies like that are um essentially doing the absolute best they can given the legacy payment rails we have. Right. Right, so they are like a virtualized layer. It's it's as if we did all kinds of hacks and stuff on top of phone lines, but fundamentally, if you can, um, like replace phone lines with fiber optics, you can do a different kind of thing. Sure. Um, uh, and here's another analogy. This is the kind of thing that you would not be able to do with the current system, but I think that you will see within five years or so, uh, especially, um, you know, you might be able to do this with Ethereum today, actually. Uh, but uh, the basic idea would be. Let's say you have a million people around the world, and each of them wagers um, 10 cents per day and puts them into a single uh, smart contract. 
Um, and so they just hit a button to basically wager 10 cents a day. And they're in Nigeria, they're in India, they're in Brazil, they're in Japan, etc. So 10 cents per day at a million people, that's like, you know, $100,000 a day. And then this algorithm picks one of them at random and pays them back out. Okay. Now, uh, what's cool about that is digital currency relative to the existing payment system is really good for payments that are very large, uh, very small, very fast, very international, and very automated, or some combination thereof, right? And so what, what that particular example has is it has very small, fast, and international payments in because you're receiving a million payments of 10 cents from a lot of places, and then very fast, automated, large, international payments out because then you're paying out $100,000 to one of people in a, in a bunch of countries, right? So that kind of application would be impossible with the current banking system because the fees and the scale would kill you in terms of the inbound. And uh, the sheer number of countries you have to support for a fast $100,000 wire would kill you on the outbound. There's so no you, way you can so do that. So you think that would be the case even if there were 20 companies like TransferWise that were mediating transactions on top of the the core uh, financial technology. Yeah. Uh, something like that would basically be the, the what it does, it gets you into a box within the current system where you might be able to hack one aspect of it or another. When you start hacking like five of them, it just starts to become something where the current system can't is not just not really set up for that, right? So that's an example. It's, it's not exactly an artificial example, but it's something where small, fast international payments in, large, fast, automated international payments out, um, like, you know, that's, that's just not that easy to do. And especially on that time scale, right? If you want that to happen within the course of a day, an international wire takes like three days, right? Now you might say, okay, well, Balji, that sounds like a, you know, a hypothetical example. Well, so first is I think something like that would be one of the most popular applications on the internet, frankly, um, because just, oh, you know, bet some free money, right? Um, but uh, the second thing is something like that is also a toy application for a new kind of like real-time crowdfunding. Right. Imagine if you could collect money as quickly as you can collect seven thousand upvotes and then actually spend it on something. Right. Like the the latter aspect, yes, you can collect money on a GoFundMe or a or a Kickstarter or something, but the settlement is not instantaneous, and that means you can't spend it instantaneously, and that means you can't write a program to spend it instantaneously, and that means that there's whole applications that we aren't seeing because the settlement part is not happening in real time. Um, so, so I think that there's very new kinds of things that could happen if you could have a program that could just immediately start spending the money after you've gotten it. Um, for example, you can crowdfund something and, uh, as you're crowdfunding it, you're seeing the page populate with what you just bought, right? Like the, the money's being spent by a program sure. or something and you're seeing it populate. So, uh, so those are things that will happen once we can get some of the latency down. Um, and that's gonna, that's gonna be something that I think digital currency will allow. Okay. So speaking of that, the transaction throughput right now is obviously quite low on the Bitcoin network. Yep. Explain why that throughput is low. Well, um, the throughput currently at the absolute maximum, people have quoted like seven transactions per second, but that's really an upper bound. It is this, you know, very much uh, discussed block size issue, right? Um, where there is a limit to the block size in the Bitcoin network, and that limits the number of transactions that can happen per day. Now, if you are somebody who cares mostly about the digital gold or store of value application, then you don't really care about the block size issue very much because you buy $50,000 worth of Bitcoin once a year and you sell it, you know, three years later, right? So your transaction volume is extremely low. You don't really care if the fee is one cent or 50 cents. 
um, your vision for the system, you know, all you care about is, uh, you know, that, that like you can get it out at some point and that, uh, you know, the private keys work and, and so on and so forth, right? So that leads people towards a small C conservative model where uh, they say, well, look, digital gold is enough. If we just get to gold, gold has a $2 trillion market cap. Boom, let's just go and compete with that, right? Um, so so that is that is uh, both the reason that that transaction volume is uh, low um, and why some people don't think that that's that that big problem uh, conversely if you want um, the Bitcoin economy to grow very large uh, with you know actual transactions happening within Bitcoin you have one or two options so the first is so-called second layer solutions and these are like lightning and and, and so on and so forth now like I'm a I'm a big fan of the guys who develop Lightning. I think that the technology is good. Payment channels are interesting. All this stuff is interesting, but it is a whole second layer. Um, it is a whole second layer that is as different from Bitcoin in many ways as um, I don't know, like uh, like the OS is from the raw hardware, right? I mean that's not exactly the right analogy, but it's basically a huge caching and um, system of intermediary hubs and that's deposits. Well, yeah, potentially centralizing. Um, you know, these hubs are potentially centralizing, but let's just say it has properties of the current system. You know, it's just it's just a different system, right? It's like a it's a whole second system with all that entails, um, and it's not just the existing system expanded, right? Um, but on the other hand, it um, allows you to maintain the stability of the current system and then ha push all the risk in theory to that second one, right? So if you're a digital goal kind of person, Lightning seems like a good solution. You basically push the risk up to the second layer of the high throughput stuff and you leave the lower layer intact. Fine. Okay. Then there's the there's another solution for this, which is, quote, increase of block size, right? And this is, I would say, probably where most corporations, venture funded corporations in Bitcoin are. Um, probably where most venture capitalists are, um, they think that the block size should be increased because basically, you know, the the, the Bitcoin network should handle lots of traffic, and um, there are arguments in favor of that. One of the, you know, one of them is that um, that the block size does not directly. You know, there's there's a premise that often people put, which is that a small block size means greater decentralization. But if you look at the network, um, there are, uh, you know, and, and you measure like the Gini coefficient, right? So Gini coefficient is a measure of, you know, inequality, right? Um, what's interesting is you can call it inequality, you can call it centralization. They're not exactly the same thing, but they are actually kind of related. And normally those are concerns of different political factions, but um, you can use some of the same measures to measure them. So if you, if you measure the Gini coefficient of, let's say, miners, Developers, exchanges, stakeholders, etc. Um, the degree of you know inequality or centralization. Uh, there's a most centralization with miners, and the second most with developers, and the third most with exchanges, and the fourth with stakeholders in the Bitcoin community. Roughly speaking, you can you can argue that, um, but I think that 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 ordinal ranking would would hold. Um, and so what that what that means is uh, that. Um, the premise that the small block size is causing decentralization is just simply not accurate, I don't think, because uh, you have mining centralization already. What the small block size may in theory do is mean that you've got more nodes out there, but nodes are not the bottleneck. They're not the most centralized component right now. So even if, for example, you took the number of nodes just theoretically down from 10,000 to 1,000, but you increase the number of miners uh, you know, of, of significance from 10 to 100, the overall decentralization of the system 
would increase as measured by the number of people you have to get into the room to compromise the system, right? So from a systems level perspective, I think that that's an interesting concept, right? Um, that you, you basically want to think of, okay, how do I measure the decentralization of a system? I measure the Gini coefficient of every individual component and the number of folks you need to get into a room in order to, uh, to break that system. And uh, trading off where we have an excess in one area for um, an increase in, in decentralization in the other might be a good trade-off. Right? With that said, then there's a counter argument, which is certainly true, that a large block size certainly does not necessarily mean that you're going to see more miners um, or more significant miners. Uh, anyway, so I uh, didn't mean to digress, but just some <laughs> thoughts there. Yeah. No, no, let's digress. I mean, the, the, the whole block size debate, every time I try to look into it, I just go down a rabbit hole and I don't know what the answer is. And it feels like a very something that's going to be very hard to know until we're looking at it retrospectively, what was the right decision. Um, but we can at least look at the ways that the Bitcoin community is handling the governance. And um, what does that, what does that tell you about the, the community? Are you, are you content with how the community is handling the, uh, this debate or do you feel like it's unhealthy and, and politically toxic? Yeah, so <laughs> it's it certainly um, it's something where uh, it's been fairly rancorous within Bitcoin. Here, here's a, a counter argument, an argument, a counter argument, and then a counter counter argument. Right. Okay. So the the obvious point, the obvious argument is, you know, wow, there's a lot of rancor and negativity and so on within the two main competing factions within the Bitcoin space right now, the big blockers and small blockers. That's the obvious point. The counter argument is despite this and despite this going on for two years bitcoin's at an all-time high or like close to right um and uh you know it's being proclaimed dead many times and the thing just keeps going and maybe what all the fighting is doing is just attracting a lot of attention to it um and so like you know the no publicity is good publicity <laughs> argument right or uh, like or like no, no publicity, publicity is bad, bad publicity, publicity right and uh and in addition um what uh it, it has done is basically uh, indicate to people, well, this thing is so bulletproof and bombproof that it's just really hard to politically attack. Like there's folks who will do, uh, you know, a soft fork and a hard fork and a minor associated soft fork and so on. Like, you know, there, there's so many different ways, like in this rock, paper, scissors game of yeah. checks and balances that it's just gridlock, right? Yeah. And there's a theory, you know, lots of folks in the U.S. believe that gridlock is actually good. Gridlock is survival. Well, right, because it means then the government can't do anything. If you don't want the government to do anything, then you're <laughs> pro-gridlock, Right. Um, and there's a, there's a thesis on that. It's a respectable, you know, school of thought. So that's the, the gridlock is good thesis where, um, you don't really, that this is the small C conservative who just wants their digital gold. And then you don't care what's happening. You know, who cares? Like if you're, if you were just in a, in a time capsule and like th there's been so many controversies about Bitcoin for the last eight years. It's actually insane. Um, there's the Bitcoin is dead website and so on. So this would be the counter argument, right? Then the counter to the counter argument is to say, well, yes, it's true that Bitcoin's at an all time high, but that's sort of like Steve Ballmer saying that, you know, hey, Microsoft profits are an all time high, right? 
And while Microsoft profits are an all-time high, the innovation has gone somewhere else, and there's Zcash, and there's Ethereum, and there's all this infighting within Microsoft, there's all this infighting within Bitcoin. And so, yes, we're still coasting on the momentum of the past, but we have lost the innovation of the future, or we're in danger of losing it, right? Um, and then, you know, what what is needed is, like, you know, the right leadership, like the way that Satya has totally turned around Microsoft, actually. Like, I mean, he has done... And uh, not to digress, but absolutely insane job for a company of that scale. Like he's done a really, really. Or amazing the way job. that Vitalik has led Ethereum the entire time. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Like Vitalik has gone through. I mean, you have to give Vitalik his props. Like you know, he took Ethereum from nothing to where it is today. He took it through the DAO. He took it through very, very, very tough times. Um, he had to lay off lots of people before the Ethereum crowdfund. He managed to navigate all the legal issues and so on. Is not yet, you know, got any issues on that score. Steve Jobs of cryptocurrency. Well, I mean, he's good. Like, we'll see where, where things land up, right? Like, you know, the thing is that um, he's definitely made an impact, right? You know, he's... Um, but uh, the the interesting question to me is um, where each technology lands from a niche perspective. Um, so Ethereum's big advantage is it's easy to program with, right? Um, it's a big disadvantage, I would argue, is that uh, it is centralized, and it is something where one person can, as we saw with the DAO, like basically reverse the immutable system. So for all the digital gold people, Ethereum is a non-starter because it is something where like if it gets politically hot enough and, and the DAO, like, yes, there's political heat around the DAO. But that was, I mean, like in the grand scheme of things, nothing compared to something like the financial crisis. Sure. Right. Like the financial crisis was, I don't know, a, if you measure by newspaper articles or scale of impact, a thousand to ten thousand x greater, right. right? And people still look back at it and are like that was handled so poorly. Whereas most people with the Dow are like, yeah, I'm happy with how that went. Yeah, exactly, right. So, so, but the issue is that like, um, it is not so much that the Dow issue was handled. I mean, like, I think that given the under the circumstances, like Ethereum uh, or Vitalik did what what he had to do. Um, one of the issues was had he just let it stand, the Dow attacker would have had like whatever ten percent or fourteen percent of Ethereum, um, and or some large stake like four percent. I forget the exact number, um, and uh, then it would have been very difficult for them to roll out an eventual proof of stake algorithm because they would have had the Dow attacker, <laughs> you know, have being able to vote on all this stuff, right? And that's probably not the guy you want to have four percent of Ethereum governance, right, or whatever the percentage was. Um, so he was in a bit of a, like a hard place there. Um, it was an issue because, you know, they talked about, you know, the immutable code of, you know, the, the DAO and, and, you know, like all that type of stuff. Right. Um, but the best decision was made at that time, I think, in, in, in retrospect. With that said, what it did was it made it very obvious to any regulator watching or any, you know, large company or any government agency watching. And they're certainly watching at this point um, that, OK, um, we have kind of a game plan for how we would unwind any transaction on the Ethereum network. And you know what? That is a feature. Like, undo is a feature. The The, the question is, though, like, how far do you go with that? And um, one one issue with the, you know, code immutability thing is that, that I'm, I'm still, I don't know what the answer is on this, but let me throw it out for consideration. Um, with an algorithm like Quicksort, you can write it down and have it be done and uh, then it's like this immortal kind of thing, right? Um, like it can go in Donald Knuth's book of, you know, like of algorithms, and it basically doesn't change from 1970 to today, right? Maybe you might have to modify it for some like integer overflow thing where it didn't contemplate such large data sets, but that's basically about it, right? Um, 
but most business logic is not like that. Uh, most business logic, I mean, Amazon's website. Code yeah, not just code rot, but also, you know, so dependencies, just that. But like um, any kind of website or any kind of code of any complexity, um, as your you know listeners know, a lot of the work is in the maintenance and the modification of it in response to users. As it grows, you know, you're, you're going to have to change it for all kinds of unanticipated reasons. Humans are just unpredictable. Businesses change, all this stuff. So that suggests is that um, the class of code that you actually want to decentralize and make immutable is a limited class. Because if you decentralize it and make it immutable, you cannot edit it anymore. Or at least if you are editing it, you've sort of defeated the point of decentralizing it and making it immutable, right? Hence, what you want to decentralize and make immutable is maybe the quick sort type stuff or maybe just like the raw contract. And then you got to really, 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 really get it right. Because if you're constantly updating it in, in the Ethereum blockchain, well, okay, there's a record of you updating it. Um, I guess that's better than nothing, right? But um, it's not that much different from having a centralized company that you just trust. If somebody, if you trust somebody to keep updating the contract or the code on you, um, well, you're trusting them, right? Um, so, uh, so the, the room for exactly where decentralized code execution gives a 10x advantage over centralized code execution is not yet obvious to me. I don't know what that application is. Um, I think that, uh, you know, well, we'll see if we're right about this, but I think that what we're doing with the inbox um, at, at 21 is going really in some ways two years or three years earlier and saying, okay, we have decentralized currency that now works, that's robust. Um, how do we make an application with that that is 10x and that's different from what's come before? And it's been hard to get people paid out, right? So just the payments bit alone has been hard. And I think that in the future, as we get that, and when we get like a million or 10 million people that have digital currency balances, well, then I think some of the smart contract stuff and so on becomes interesting. Um, but, uh, but I think that um, at least right now, it's not obvious what you'd want to decentralize uh, from a code execution standpoint. And if you don't know what that is, then it's not obvious what the gain is over just using it for pure payments. Hmm. So, so if we play out Bitcoin and Ethereum towards the future and we assume Bitcoin remains this ossified digital gold and Ethereum continues to move fast and hard fork whenever they need to, does... So the Ethereum people tell me, uh, oh, Ethereum can be Ethereum will become a place where smart contracts are formed and Bitcoin is used as a medium of exchange for those smart contracts. And some of the Bitcoin people will tell me, uh, oh, Ethereum will be transacted on the Bitcoin network. And I feel like I'm ill-equipped to even un really understand those statements, um, or maybe I'm not even wording them correctly. But uh, give me give me a sense for the synergies of the Ethereum uh, world and the Bitcoin world uh, once we're, you know, if you play this forward five or ten years or however long you need to get to the point where people are actually using these things for utility rather than raw speculation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, you know, if you look at where the gold market is, it's a two trillion market cap, and that's like 100x where Bitcoin is. So if the only thing Bitcoin does is it wins digital gold, that's of world historical importance, right? Like, so that's like a very good application and shouldn't, shouldn't be, shouldn't be dismissed. Not that, not that one is dismissing it. Um, and Ethereum by its nature, because it's programmable, because it's Turing complete, um, because, 
uh, it it's reversible, right? Like I don't, I'm not trying to beat a dead horse with a DAO thing, but it set a precedent for how the network would work. Right. Um, because of that, it may be, for example, the the actual second layer. That is to say, it might mm. be right. So it might be something where you hold most of your money in Bitcoin. And then you hit an exchange like like Shapeshift and you transfer some of it into Ethereum as like your checking account. Like Bitcoin is your bank account, Ethereum is your checking account. That's like one model. Okay. Um, another model is um, that uh, we have a bunch of different cryptocurrencies, just like we have different social networks. And then it's just not obvious which one wins or, you know, but there's, there's a Facebook and there's a LinkedIn and there's a Pinterest and there's an Instagram. There's a Twitter and there's a this and there's a that, right? In the same way, I think there's a you know there's a Bitcoin, and but those are so balkanized. Sorry to interrupt yeah, you, sure. but those are so balkanized and th- like they resist synergies oftentimes. I mean, Facebook certainly resists synergies. That's true. I would say uh, cryptocurrencies have one or two really critical aspects to them, um, which are first, uh, you can from the very beginning sell them for fiat and then bring it back into you know another cryptocurrency. So there is an exit, export all your data. Uh, in a way that Facebook or LinkedIn never had, right? So that's one, like with a very unified data format, namely a wire of whatever, 100000 or $1 million to your bank account, boom, you've just exported all your Ethereum, right? Or all your Bitcoin. So so one is that the, so because of that, I'm very bullish on the ability for value to flow back and forth between cryptocurrencies in a way that it couldn't really between social networks, right? So, so the lock-in is less with, with any individual cryptocurrency. That's number one, I would say. Um, and then number two is, uh, you know, I, I believe in sort of a metapolitical view in the sense that um, the right governance model for cryptocurrency, we don't know yet. And maybe, probably, the right answer is to just experiment with a hundred different kinds of governances, right? There's, <laughs> right? So there's proof of work with, with Bitcoin and, you know, Ethereum wants to move to proof of stake. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's some issues, by the way, with proof of stake, which they're well aware of and, you know, they're working on. Uh, one of those issues is basically that um, if you have proof of stake, uh, then you can have a chain which can just keep getting extended by by the by the stakeholders, right? And this is the so-called stake grinding problem. And what that can lead to is like a hydra of competing chains, and you can't just distinguish between them by saying which is the longest chain and validating the hashes. Uh, instead, you have to effectively like ask Vitalik or somebody very trusted which one is the Ethereum chain. And that introduces trust into the system, whereas the Bitcoin, you can pull the network, you can look for the longest Bitcoin chain, and you can validate all the hashes um, going all the way back to t equals zero. It is literally an algorithm that I can write in a few hundred lines of code um, that I can uh, confirm mathematically without any human involvement based only on the fact that I know the difficulty of double SHA hashing, right? So... Um, the, the cool thing about that, the proof of work, is you literally don't need to trust anybody else. You would not have been able to fake this data structure without an enormous amount of computational power, right? So the, the amount of computational power that's required to get to this point can be computed from it, and you can also see if there's a, a fake hash or, or something like that, right? Proof of stake isn't like that and introduces some trust. Um, there's a third model which people are now discussing in the context of Bitcoin, which is what I'd call like proof of work change or unpredictable proof of work change. So with proof of work, ultimately where power goes to is it goes to miners because, um, you know, they ultimately are the ones who are approving transactions. I mean, people can argue this point, but that's where the greatest degree of centralization is in Bitcoin right now. That is, uh, and the second greatest is developers, but, but um, basically a miner can um, approve or disapprove transactions and, and they have a lot of leverage in the space, right? With proof of stake, 
uh, arguably the power goes to stakeholders and the largest stakeholder, and, and then you trust that largest stakeholder. Uh, and then with changing proof of work, the concept there would be something where uh, developers would um, periodically change the proof of work function in such a way as to resist so-called ASICization and data centers and so on. And uh, doing that would basically mean um, that uh, you know you, you have one of two things: either a you publish the proof of work change schedule in advance, and um, probably somebody can figure out how to put that into a chip. Like if you publish what the proof of work is going to be from every year from now until 2100, and you put that out there, that is an algorithm, right? And so probably somebody could put that into a sufficiently complex chip. Or what you do is every six months you you know pull from a vat of entrails and you say, oh, this is what the proof of work is going to be, right? So if you do that, well, now you have truly defeated asicization because it's unpredictable. But where power now rests is with something that's similar to the Fed Open Markets Committee. Because the group of developers that is figuring out what that new proof of work is going to be is sort of similar to the Fed Open Markets Committee figuring out what the interest rates are. And then there's a huge incentive to know what proof of work they're going to pick because then you could have your chips ready in advance and so on and so forth, right? So door one sort of leads to centralization by miners. Door two, centralization by stakeholders. Door three, centralization by developers. And so I think what the answer is, is basically that centralization is tolerable so long as there is an exit. And the exit is sell your coins, get cash, start a new coin. As long as there's constant exit, I'm bullish on the cryptocurrency space as a whole. Numerai on the show recently to discuss how they were using crypto, their own in-house cryptocurrency. Have you looked at Numerai, by the way? Uh, it's a hedge fund. Hedge fund. Right, yeah. so they have this interesting thing where they introduce their own cryptocurrency to incentivize long-term thinking in the participants in the data science tournaments that they hold for their crowdsourced hedge fund. And the reason I found it interesting was just because Maybe I just don't know the space very well, but it was the first time where I actually saw, okay, here is somebody actually building a, a utility, actually it was a smart contract, but a, a smart contract in a way that makes a lot of sense. It actually is a unique form of utility. Um, so I guess I have a couple questions. So are you seeing, are you starting to see smart contracts that actually make sense that are getting deployed? Um, so I know of Numerai. Um, I don't know whether or not they are. Um, I, I actually I'm not familiar with exactly what they're doing in terms of smart contracts. Yeah. Um, if their smart contract is on a coin that they themselves control, I would. I mean, that's it's on Ethereum. It's on Ethereum, right? No, it's so, on Ethereum. It's on Ethereum. Yeah. Okay, okay. So if it's on Ethereum, then maybe it's a good use of smart contracts. Right. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't sure, dug sure. into it. Um, I would say that in general, I. You know, and, and this is this is certainly not a criticism of Ethereum. It's not a criticism of the community. I, I'm I'm bullish on them long term. In general, I have not seen a production smart contract. Um, and by that, what I mean is uh, something where there are serious amounts of money flowing through it. The serious amounts of money flowing through the space are basically in three things: first, crowdfunding; two, exchanges; um, and third, um, mining. That's where like the tens of millions of dollars are. There has not really been an application. Yet that has worked in other areas. We'll see if there is. Is that because they can't think of it or people are afraid to deploy it? I mean, I think it is. It's like actually it's, a lot of these things are very obvious in retrospect, but they're not obvious in, in foresight, right? Like uh, 
you know, for example, in 1990, Google was not an obvious application, sure. right? Like, or like, uh, rather, it was not certainly not as obvious that it'd be as profitable as it is, right? Uh, Facebook was not as not obvious that it'd be as profitable as it is. Um, there's lots and lots of good ideas that sound like good ideas that uh, came up in the 90s that only eventually the prerequisites came into place for them. Um, so I think there's plenty of concepts people are talking about, you know, with respect to smart contracts that will all eventually work. But that first one that really works uh, is it's not going to be obvious, I think, what that is until, you know, it's gotten to $10, $100 million in revenue. So, but is that because people aren't thinking of them right now or because... Oh, there's they, lots of people working on it. Okay. Yeah. They're working, okay. Yeah. I mean, there's tons, like I see lots and lots of pitches for them. I would say, though, that basically... Um, in general, you usually don't want to build a business on bleeding edge technology. And the reason for that is um, it's unstable. Right. And, uh, you know, as an analogy, so for example, you know, my first company that I started was a genetics company, doing very well. And um, with that company at the time, this was 2008 or, you know, or thereabouts, uh, there was a choice in the community between. Um, or, or where most of the attention was, the equivalent of smart contracts for the genomics community at that time was so-called complex diseases, right? That is, what are the genetic roots of diabetes and, you know, um, obesity and all these things which are very multifactorial and so on. Yeah. The thing is, that the more multifactorial, the more complex it is, uh, the more um, loose the genetic correlation because, of course, the same person can be both skinny and fat at different points in their life. Hence, it's not a purely genetic thing. There's environmental variables, which means your signal is already reduced, and, and so on and so forth. And because it was hard, it was interesting to academics, and that's why they worked on it. And that's where all the energy was and the focus and so on, right? And so what we decided to do was actually take all the stuff which had already been nailed, that was already working, at least in what an academic defines as working, um, which were all the Mendelian diseases like cystic fibrosis and Tay-Sachs and, and, and so on. And those are things that have been in the textbooks for decades and uh, that people had known how to test for for years. But no one had bundled them all together, productized it, used modern technologies, not bleeding edge, but two years old, three years old, um, and then used them actually in clinical practice to reduce the cost of things, right? And uh, just doing that, we actually ended up changing clinical practice. Literally, like, you know, a month ago, um, a guideline came out saying expanded carrier screening is now recommended for, like, all women, right? That was a very, in its own way, a very controversial thing back in 2010, 20, 2009, when we first proposed it. We've literally changed clinical practice at council, right? So um, the way that, and, and the complex disease stuff has still not fully been solved, right? Like, almost 10 years later. It's not, I mean, progress has been made. I'm not saying it hasn't been made. But it's it's still not something I would say you can productize right. yet, right? And so this is similar to you know when I when I started teaching um, stats at Stanford, there was an older professor who was a friend of mine, and he said, uh, biology any problem that you find interesting is too hard. Don't assign it to the students, <laughs> right? Because if you find it interesting as somebody who is living and breathing computational statistics all day, uh, it is definitely too hard for somebody who's just learning it, right? And the same way, if there's a technology you find interesting, um, that means there's some uncertainty in it. And that means it's probably too hard to use in production. Um, you really want something which is two years old, three years old, not so old that you don't get any technological advantage out of it, but not so new that you're the one who is stubbing your toe on all the infrastructural things, right? right. Because when you're actually, as you know, when you're developing software, it's about, you know, hey, has somebody on Stack Overflow seen this bizarre bug that I've sure. seen, right? 
And if somebody else has skinned their knee on that and already done that, then, then you can go and deploy it, right? And so I think like smart contracts are still in that stage um, and will be for a little while. I'd say like sending and receiving Bitcoin, turning it into fiat, the infrastructure is being built for that now. Um, and I think now we'll start to see applications because infrastructure is set. Okay, last question. What are the pieces of Bitcoin infrastructure, whether you're talking about software or hardware, that people are not working on that you wish people were working on? Well, I'd like to see a resolution to this block size issue. <laughs> I mean, that's an obvious one. Um, I think that, um, well, I, you know, I think that what we're working on would be uh, certainly one thing I'd, I'd like to see, um, which is allowing people to actually earn digital currency for doing things. Um, and uh, if they can earn digital currency for doing things and they're getting it for free, they're more generous with it. They're more likely to experiment with it. Um, and we can add a plugin, for example, very easily so that people can earn not just Bitcoin, but Ethereum and Zcash and, right. and so on, right? So you go to 21 and you can get any digital currency you want yeah. simply by filling out some surveys and clicking some buttons, right? So we can have a menu of new digital currency, new digital currency of the week that you can just play around sure. with, right? What's the next thing that you're going to build on, you know, in addition to the messaging system? Yeah, good question. So we have um, a bunch of things coming out of the next couple of weeks. Um, so one is uh, we are going to make it such that um, you can forward any email that uh, is an unsolicited commercial email to 21 at 21.co. And then what we will do is we will send a bounce to that person saying, hey, go to 21.co, Jeff Meyerson. And because um, Jeff is really busy right now, and pay to get in touch with Jeff, hmm. right? So this way you can clean out your inbox, and every week you forward a hundred emails there, right? And maybe five of them turn into bounces where they actually want to get in touch with you, and they're willing to pay for your time. Okay, so it's basically that's save, great. That's great, right? So save time, make money, very easy to understand. Instantly, because it's just forward to 2120.co, very easy to remember. It works in Outlook, it works in Gmail, it works in Hotmail, whatever, Yahoo Mail, all these things, mobile, web, all that stuff. No plugins or anything like that, right? So that's one thing that we're launching, um, and I can add you. All, 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 all software engineering daily people will, will send out a link to the list <laughs> so you guys can try that out early. That sounds okay. great. Okay. Second thing that we're adding is um, basically uh, dozens and dozens of new lists. So um, you, you've probably seen that you can contact famous individual people like Mark Anderson, Ben Horowitz, and, and so on. And you can also contact like lists of VCs and angels and whatnot on the 21 side. Okay. So we're launching now our lists where it's like thousands of Facebook users or thousands of Bitcoin holders or thousands of engineers. Oh, wow. Okay, thousands of Stanford students, right? So with one click, you can now contact thousands of people. So if you're launching a new altcoin, guess what? You can now contact a thousand Bitcoin holders and pitch them on the altcoin, right? Uh, or if you're recruiting a Stanford student, you can one click contact a thousand Stanford students and get a yes, no on a decision, right? So you're basically buying an action from people at scale in a way that hasn't really been possible on the internet before. Um, you could certainly run ads before, but this is not an ad. It's a, you only pay if you get a reply, right? So if you show it to them and they yeah. don't do anything, then you don't pay anything. That's great. Right? Okay. So what's cool about that from the buyer side obviously has some value. You're able to script thousands of human beings, right? Um, from the seller side, uh, it has value because we think of each list that you can apply to, for example, apply to the Stanford students list or apply to the Python developers list uh, or apply to the uh, Facebook users list. Each list has a price associated with it. So if you apply to the VC list and you join, um, the price will be, let's say, $50 per reply, because that's a very elite, hard to get onto list. 
if you apply it to, let's say, the Python engineers list, it might be $5 per reply, right, or $10 per reply. If you apply to the Facebook user list, it might only be like 10 cents per reply because there's a billion Facebook users, right? So each of these lists, um, it's like a micro job um, where the Python engineer list might give you 100 emails a year at 10 bucks a reply. So that's like a thousand bucks a year as a micro job. It's not a full job and it's not a micro task. Yeah. It's something in between. Yeah. Right? You qualify for it once, you fill out the application, and if you get onto it, you have a steady stream of work. Sure. Which you can just complete, you know, from your own convenience, right? So, so that's that's the second thing we're launching, um, and um, uh, we've got more, but those are, I think, two pretty interesting okay. things. Yeah. Okay. Well, Balaji, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been a pleasure. Okay, great, guys, go and sign up at twenty one dot co. <laughs> yes.